This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Did You Read with Tim Montgomery. Welcome to Did You Read, the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and this week I'm joined by Hugo Rifkind, Laura Patel and Richard Fletcher. Mansion taxes, higher council taxes and rises in stamp duty are all opposed by many affluent homeowners, and often with good reason. They should realise, however, that property in Britain is a time bomb they cannot escape. If measures are not taken soon to make more housing available to more people, then 20 years from now there will be such an appetite for savage taxes on homeowners as to make them inevitable. Nigel Farage likes to say that UKIP is no longer a one-man band but he is still the party's biggest draw and its key decision maker. If he quit tomorrow, it would descend into chaos. UKIP is on a roll right now, but it's hard to see it surviving in the long term. The hostile rhetoric surrounding immigration has spooked big business. Capping EU immigration is not the answer to the nation's ills, warns the CBI. But will big business be heard in a post-crisis environment where politicians will only talk about small businesses and football fans hold up banners attacking Russian oligarchs and their dirty money? So those are our three topics for today, and we'll start with the one suggested by uh, Hugo Rifkind. Hugo, um, we're recording on Tuesday. Um, Yesterday, Monday, Ed Balls unveiled his uh, little bit more detail on the mansion tax, and it looks like actually what we'll raise, once all the concessions that he's... uh, come up with have yeah. been brought in it probably isn't going to raise a great deal of money probably about a, a billion pounds or one fiftieth of what we need to get rid of the deficit look right from the offset I th- we should acknowledge that Labour's mansion tax proposals are nonsense as are most mansion tax proposals so I'm not making any argument any particular any particular policy here. I mean, yeah, Labour's mansion taxes are particularly bad. They're slightly slightly worse even than the Lib Dems mansion tax proposals, which were bad enough. The point I wanted to make is that we need to do something about property. And the reason why we need to do something about property is that if we don't, sooner or later we're going to have to, and it's going to be much, much more savage. I've made a sort of moral argument for, for taxing property several times in my column, giving up from that slightly. And I just want to make that sort of the argument from inevitability, which is if you look at where we're going, sooner or later something's got to give. It's not just the poor who can't afford property anymore. It's not just the lower middle classes who can't afford property anymore. It's kind of sort of professionals in their forties living in London with families. Mm. And there will come a point where the property owning classes are such a small demographic that 
the rest of the, the rest of the population will will go wild upon them, unless unless we want to want to reach that horizon, which will be very bad for all the people who oppose mansion taxes today. We need to sort that out. So, so your your basic view is whatever you, you may think about the mansion tax, build, 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 build. Build, 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 sort out council tax would be my, my prescription. So, so you're, rather than a new tax, a mansion tax, you would support uh, higher council tax bans for large yeah. value properties. I mean, the, the, one of the, which is what where the Liberal Democrats have ended up. Sort of, yeah. But I mean, one of the one of the biggest problems with the mansion tax it, it, it is divisive. It's by it's by intention divisive, and so I'm sort of opposed to that. I mean, I think also the. When you get this idea of inherent unfairness that exists with property ownership, it feeds into all kinds of other things in quite a bad way. I remember a couple of years ago writing about squatters somewhere or other, and squatters, uh, many of them making the argument, look, why should I care about property rights? Property rights are never going to help me. Mm. And when you have a huge proportion of people who are starting to think in that way, that's just bad for the makeup of society generally. You know, this is this is a corrosive thing. Property. It's not just about not owning homes. It's about how much of a sort of stake in society you have. Richard Fletcher. Well, yeah, sorry. You're, you're, you're waiting to, to desperate to get in, but um, there is an economic case, isn't there, for taxing things like property more and income less, because it's good to tax bad things, if you like, and not tax good things like income. And at the moment, the UK property market is a bad thing. Well, I, I agree with you on that point. Uh, I. I in terms of taxing um, bad things. I, I always worry when people try and use the taxation system to solve problems. Taxation should be as, as small as possible and, and should be about providing the state with with the, the money it needs. I mean, I suppose uh, two points. One, I, I always worry about our obsession as a nation with owning our own homes, and, and I'd like to see that change in some ways, and that would make the labour markets much more efficient. It would make us... We'd, we'd stop being a beta economy where we always... We outperformed on the way up and we overperformed on the way down as such. So, I, 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 you know, I do worry that we seem to always believe that we should own homes. And I also think in terms of taxation of property, the biggest area for reform should be buy-to-let landlords in that if I go and buy shares, no one gives me, a, and, and I borrowed money to do that, no one would give me a tax break on the interest mm. uh, that, I, it, on, that I used to buy, those, that I was paying on the capital to buy those shares. Yet if I go and buy a small buy-to-let investment, I get, I get, I get, I get mm. a, a, a tax relief on the, the interest I pay on the mortgage. So in, I, I don't like the idea of a mansion tax. You know, we always go to um, stately homes and you laugh at all those windows that were bricked up many, many years ago. And I'm old enough to remember the poll tax and the poll tax riot. So I, I don't like the idea of a mansion tax at all. I, the, the housing what, about, what about higher council tax bans? Does that appeal to you more? Again, uh, the, the, or, fr- like or worry tax, you less? That has, if, if, if that is to... But that's about trying to solve a problem using taxation rather than... At, but know, surely someone in a £3 million house paying exactly the same council tax bound as someone in a £350,000 tax, that's not equitable when we have a massive deficit to, to fill. Even if it is only a billion pounds, it's a billion pounds. It's, it's not equitable, but I'm not sure that a higher council tax rate ban is going to persuade this mythical granny who's living in her six-bedroom house to move. I mean, I don't know, we've all got older parents trying to persuade them to do sensible, rational <laughs> things. is very difficult, you know. Um, but, you know so If my mum and dad are listening, I'd just like to know that I think they're perfectly rational. <laughs> 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 I think we, we focus on homeowners for, for a reason because, I mean, they, they do have it easier. I, I agree that we should be less obsessed with homeownership, but one of the upshots of homeownership becoming so expensive is that rents have become far more expensive you know i mean renting is an mm. is, is a is a sort of is insanely expensive today um and so 
and a, and a sort of a homeowner who lives in X home compared to someone who rents X home is paying far far less, mm. and so there's there's vast levels of resentment building there as well. I would yeah. say. I should say uh, you wrote uh, Hugo a very good piece on renting probably six nine months ago now, and uh, if you are a Times subscriber and uh, go to the Times.co.uk/slash/comment-central, not only can you subscribe to this podcast there, but you can also read some of the articles like that article by Hugo on renting if you want to explore some of these topics more. Laura Patel, can I bring you in? I, I know Hugo wants to talk to us about the wider property market, but I'm still obsessing about mansion tax. What's the politics of this? Because generally, the opinion polls seem to suggest that voters like these kind of, uh, of taxes, but it doesn't bring in much revenue and probably is something of a distraction, really, from the real issues, whether it is building more houses or closing the deficit. Yeah, I think Labour have proposed it because it's a very popular, populist, you could say, policy that goes down well. If you, know, if you live anywhere outside of London, then a tax on homes worth more than two million sounds like they really are mansions. But, you know, people who live in the capital know that perhaps older people or somebody who bought a long time ago might have a house that's gone up a lot in value and don't have the the cash to pay for that tax. Because Ed Balls has attempted to tackle that by saying, I think if your income is less than £42,000 a year, you can defer paying this Yeah, tax, he has, which as you Which have addresses ident- the granny issue, if you like. It does, but as you've identified it also, <laughs> it doesn't really help with the revenue issue. No. It's been interesting speaking re- in the last few months to Labour councillors and candidates and MPs in London who are really worried about it. They say it comes up on the doorstep and they feel that the party's kind of shooting itself in the foot because particularly in this, there's this band of North London that is quite liberal and quite strongly Labour supporting and they say, well, these people are well off. They don't have to vote Labour. Um, and yet here we are kind of shooting ourselves in the foot with a, with a tax that hits the people who are supporting us even though they don't have to. It's coming up as a real concern for people. And actually it's interesting what you said, Hugo, about the... Um, you know, older people, do they always make rational decisions or do we want to try and persuade... Oh, sorry, it was yeah. Richard. Do we want to persuade them to come out of their older houses? But R- one Richard deserves the, age, <laughs> the ageism charge. <laughs> one one Labour candidate said to me, well, actually, um, trying to get older people to move out of their homes goes against everything that we're taught about social policy, which is about getting older people to stay in their homes as long as possible, to be near their friends, to not have to go into care. So some people think it undermines, even from that point of view, it doesn't help with housing supply. Is there something interesting, though, Laura, the way that... Some Something like George Osborne announced a cut in, or a, a real terms cut, a freeze in the benefits of low wage people at saving three billion pounds, seems to exercise columnists and others at newspapers a lot less than this one billion pound mansion tax. Is there, is there some, am, am I being unfair to the commentaria or are we a little bit sort of self-interested in our obsession with opposing the mansion tax rather than worrying about the benefits freeze? Yeah, I'm sure there's an element of that in that those of us in the media often know people who live in those sorts of houses. And I think, but actually the, the two problems are kind of connected because I think there's some bigger questions going on here about what do we want our cities to look like? I was quite sort of struck by a piece in the Times a few weeks ago one Saturday about the mansion tax where an elderly couple who were very worried about it were talking about how their street had changed over the years and they said you know in the 70s we used to live next to academics and writers and stuff and those people have been replaced by wealthy americans or russians janice turner wrote along these yes right and so you know those two those two issues are connected actually because changes to housing benefit have obviously forced some people to move out of the capital and the rising property prices at the upper end of the market is also changing the makeup of more affluent areas and it feeds into much bigger 
question of what do we want our cities to be like? Do we want to be a sort of Parisian-style city with all the poorer people living on the outskirts, or do we want to kind of retain some sort of diversity? Uh, final word to you, Hugo, on a topic that I completely distorted, I think. But um, <laughs> uh, Laura, I took it back almost uh, to, uh, yeah. to, to where you wanted it to be, really, which is we have a property market, we have cities now that where people aren't living together yeah. in natural communities. Well, and you want to fix that. Completely. You know, and again, we, you know, we always... Perhaps it's part of this sort of media obsession with people we know, I suppose, but we always focus on the losers of, of, of something like a mansion tax. And we need to focus on, I think we need to focus more on, a, on a, a generation of people to whom that sort of lifestyle is just just a million miles away from how they're going to live. And they're not the poor. They're the, they're, the, they're the exact equivalents of the people who are objecting to a mansion tax today. OK. Well, we must move on to our second topic, which is one that you've chosen for us, um, Laura. And I should welcome you. This is your first uh, Times Opinion podcast. It's great Thanks, to have Tim. you um, uh, with us. Um, and, of course, we did try and get you a couple of weeks ago. You were down in Clacton, and uh, we couldn't establish the link with you. But uh, it's that sort of theme you want to raise, which is UKIP and Nigel Farage. And do you still think that UKIP is a, a one-man band? Because I think Douglas Carswell and perhaps Mark Reckless and Patrick O'Flynn might, might beg to differ. I do actually think it's still a one-man band. I want to sort of start by saying that I think over recent years, like main, the major political parties, perhaps, you know, newspapers as well, haven't taken UKIP seriously enough. It's a really big, interesting kind of threat to the major established parties. It has the potential to change a lot. But I think after some of the successes over this past year with Clacton and the Hayward and Middleton by-election, some people are getting a bit overexcited. There was even talk in one poll the other day of you keep getting 128 MPs, which I think is really getting a bit carried away. And I thought that an interesting way to talk about some of the challenges ahead for UKIP would be to look at this question of Farage. And I think that despite how far the party has has come and it's expanded and increased its number of spokespeople, it's got all these MEPs who have their own portfolios now and, and do share some of the burden, I still think that he is the man who has made this party. Mm. And when you're looking for a bit of historical perspective of how long will it survive, how important will it be, I find it hard to imagine it carrying on without him. Because there are, he has had problems with his back, for example, and he has quit being leader in the past. How, how likely is it, do you think, he will run or walk away after the next election? Is, it, is that a real possibility? Well, of course, he might be elected to Parliament. I yeah. mean, he stands a fairly good chance of being elected in South That's Planet, in Planet South, yeah. I think. What he'll do with that role, we don't know. As you said, he's quit before. He's had several run-ins with his health over his life. You know, his health isn't that great at the moment, if we're being honest. What if he had to stand down for health reasons tomorrow? It's hard to imagine who would replace him. I think Farage, he has his flaws. I mean, he has quite a lot of them, really. You know, he... Um, He's got a temper, he's quite controlling, he's got this quite macho image that one poll quite interestingly recently showed there's a big gender gap about women and men supporting UKIP and perhaps he is to blame for some of the reasons that women don't like UKIP so much. But he also has a lot of positives, he's so charismatic, he's very hardworking and he does about a million jobs at once for the party, being an MEP, party leader, chief negotiator of defections, media mm. spokesman and I think he's also got quite a, a unique ability to help the party as it straddles this divide between mm. left and right. At the moment, you know, they're trying to really woo Labour voters in the North as well as hanging on to some of their former Tory supporters in the South and it's a difficult act that and I find it hard to see any of the other personalities in the party being able to keep mm. this quite diverse eccentric collective of people with quite diverging views and interests 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Together, and I think that he's doing it through sheer force of personality. How, how, how Richard Fletcher, how highly do you rate Nigel Farage? I'm not asking you to comment on his ideology, but just him as a political force I, now. Is, is he up there with Alex Salmond and Boris Johnson? Or I, He absolutely amazed me. Here's a man who went to Dulwich College, you know, he was a stockbroker, and yet is this anti-establishment figure. I find that absolutely <laughs> amazing. I also find it amazing that... You know, he is a. Uh, you meet. I meet people in the city who are. You know, uh, who he hugely uh, find him hugely attractive and anti-Europeans, very right-wing, um, who love him. And there are guys who I was at school with in in southeast London who you know uh, plasterers or or you know builders and and yet they find him hugely attractive. And and as you say, it's his um, it's his ability to appeal across the social more than left to right, but his ability to appeal across the social spectrum is what really amazes me. And that he manages to present himself as this anti establishment figure right? it so amused me when he would his red trousers times for being <laughs> for being anti for being the establishment when mm. you consider his background compared to uh, to, to many of those people in the times I, I i find it i find it absolutely amazing and it's a uh, Business doesn't know quite what to do. They they don't understand. They don't understand how to interact with UKIP, particularly in Europe, where they obviously do have a number of MEPs, and you know that they should be working with business in Europe, but they're not. And and business really doesn't. And you know they're quite. You know as we all know, big business is quite good at lobbying, um, but they just don't understand how to interact. Are they, are they even trying to? I went to the UKIP conference in Doncaster. You were there as well, Laura. And what was fascinating about the conference was it was like the conferences I used to remember of old, the Tories, sort of twenty years. Years ago, it was full of people with plastic bags who'd gone there on day trips, who were staying in cheap bed and breakfasts. It wasn't full of corporate types, which is, you know, I think, of twelve thousand people mm. that attended the last Tory conference. Only five thousand were members. The rest were press and hangers-on. There is business doesn't look still to me like it is making an effort with UKIP. I don't think they are, and actually, I met perhaps, perhaps, perhaps rightly, but. I, I had lunch with a, a corporate co- head of corporate comms at a big PLC, 5100 PLC, who said we ha- we're having a debate about whether we should, which seemed bizarre to me. I felt, actually, I think you should be, but, but you know... Because even if they don't make a breakthrough in Parliament, so much happens in the European Parliament absolutely. where they have more MEPs than any other party. Absolutely, yeah. And, and so, uh, so, but business doesn't know, really is struggling on how to how to interact, how to 
But it's this ability to appeal to across that social spectrum that is the most amazing, you know, feat. And maybe it is force of nature. And and maybe I, I don't know whether Douglas Carswell or or anyone else. I don't know who would who would replace him. I don't know whether they would have that same appeal. I'm not sure they would. Richard um, is right. I think Hugo to talk about this this appeal. But of course, he's also polarizes at the same time. And there was a poll conducted by Ipsos Mori the other day that showed that it was also the least liked party by quite some way but of course in the is. UK. So, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, look, I mean, obviously, anything I say, I mean, I, I'm, I'm on the, the enemies of UKIP list. I think you've established um, that. Yes. But, um, um, and so, obviously, anything I say is part of my long-running plan to get a knighthood, which has motivated my career thus far, <laughs> as even a casual reader could see. So Hugo um, does have a absolutely. nice um, But, um, I mean, UKIP's, it, it, I mean, they're in this um, the sort of advantageous position of a minority party where they can say anything. It doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense, if the sums don't add up, all that kind of nonsense. You know, they're, they're basically in in the position that, that the Lib Dems were once in. It's why so many Lib Dem policies are so incredibly unrealistic. Mm. And of course, the Liberal Democrats were only found out in government. You, can, you can do this yeah. sort of play left in the north, play right in the south yeah. for a very long time in opposition. Well, and, and, ev- and, I mean, the, I think Farage's strength is he's the only person there who believes a bit of all of it, I think. Whereas, I mean, there was this fascinating interview with Douglas Carswell in the, in the, um, in the Guardian yesterday, and you listen to uh, him. I mean, Monday, yeah. Was it, yeah, Monday. Yeah, Monday, yeah. And you listen, and you, sorry. For those not listening on Tuesday. <laughs> yes, whatever day today is. Um, and you, you read it and you thought, why have you joined this party? You're nothing like any of them. You've got nothing and you don't believe, the only policy you're vaguely on board with is this sort of incoherent Europe idea. And that's it. That's all, that's all Leaving the European Union, that's not incoherent. Yeah, but, that's but, quite a big idea. But he's not even, I mean, he's, he's not even sort of, I've always understood him as being much more of a reformer than an yes. actor anyway. Yes. You know, and you thought, what, what are you doing with these people? And he didn't quite know. And I mean, there's such a broad swathe from him to, you know, who, which whoever will win for UKIP in the North, if UKIP ever does win in the North. And it just basically doesn't make sense. It looks like it doesn't make sense because it doesn't make sense. But they can get away with that because they're a minority party. Laura, uh, before we move on to Richard's topic, which kind of takes us to immigration, which is at the heart, perhaps, of UKIP's appeal at the moment, where are the Tories on UKIP? They, they seem to me to be in something of a panic mode Yeah, um, they are. at the moment. We, they're, they're supposed to be talking about the economy, I, th- I thought, the long-term economic plan. And now David Cameron has gone from someone who didn't want to talk about immigration at all to almost making it the defining issue in British politics. Can this possibly work? I thought the um, journalist Alex Massey summed it up brilliantly. He said that the Tory stance towards UKIP now is, UKIP are right, don't vote for them. <laughs> uh, which pretty sum- much sums up the position because David Cameron is being pushed further and further and further on immigration in particular and he seems to be promising all sorts of things that he can't get or you know doesn't want to get essentially and um, I think the Tories are really in a bind I mean even right up to Clacton I had you know Tory strategists telling me that um, they were going to get just between four and six percent in the polls which is just you know maximum double what they got last time and I find well, four, that they get four or six percent of the general election yeah and yeah. I just find that um, and they're about 18 90 percent I think they're just in denial really yeah. they're in a mixture of sort of denial and panic and I don't think it's going to end very well you agree with that Hugo well, yes. I mean, I, I mean, I sort of think they should they should pull themselves together. I mean, Cameron, you know, Cameron's whole pitch to the electorate was he's meant to be a moderniser. He's meant to be turning Tories into what Tories weren't, and um, and an optimist. Well, can, uh, you, you, yeah. t- in terms of demeanour, that is one of the most important aspects of yeah. UKIP. They don't 
feel like they're comfortable with Britain as it I is, mean, whereas Cameron's mission was to make the Conservative Party look like it was comfortable precisely, with Britain I mean, as it is. And Cameron's, Cameron's much sort of praised lauded conference speech this year, I wonder if people will look back on that as actually a bit of a disaster, because what that said, that speech almost deliberately said to a whole swathe of centrist voters, was actually, we're not the party for you. You know, we're, we're, we're exactly what we used to be. We were pretending for a while, but we're not. And if you ever, if, if you were flirting with the idea that maybe you could vote Tory, you can't get lost. And I think that will come back to haunt him, particularly if that is indicative of a future strategy. Fascinating. Our third topic is the topic chosen by Richard Fletcher, the business editor of the of the Times. And um, were you at the football to see these I was, banners I was, against uh, um, Abramovich the other day? Yeah, it was, uh, actually, I couldn't from my where I sit, uh, Crystal Palace. I couldn't ever see the banner, but I saw it on Twitter later because it's below my seat. But yeah, basically, I was quite struck by it. It was basically attacking Abramovich's dirty money. Uh, that's in speech marks, obviously, uh, as a disease that had plagued the game. And it just struck these me... These were from Palace fans. These were Palace fans, yeah. Well, maybe do... it was just a bit of club rivalry then. It was, but it just struck me that it was quite a strange... It was it was quite a moment, and it does, it does suggest to me... There was a poll last month that said that only 50% of people believed that business did any good by the CBI. And it just struck me that, that I think one of the long-term effects of... Uh, of, of the of the financial crisis is that it's not just banks that we don't trust anymore we don't trust business and I also you know this whole debate about immigration is, is very interesting and business obviously has a voice in this should have a voice in this and should be speaking up and and we are about to go into this this election where for the first time ever on both sides there are issues that business feel very strongly about they feel very strongly about the EU referendum and the damage that that's, that some business believe that that will would do to Britain and they they're, they're, there's lots of concern among business about some of the proposals uh, that the Labour Party have and there's lots of concern on business that we end up with a minority government so business has over the last you know five ten years told us they are stakeholders and they are part of society so I personally think they have a duty to speak up you know which they did very late in the day in in, in the Scottish referendum but so you know on, on those issues I really do believe they should they, they should make their views known but I think immigration demonstrates it's actually quite difficult for them to do so and they're very scared of doing so and they leave it to the likes of the CBI who sort of do it in a slightly ham-fisted yeah. way and who, who do you think, you say business as if it's sort of well, it one block, yes, but, but it's not. Know, there is the Confederation of British Industry, which, tell me if, I, if you think I've got this right, which is kind of like the established big businesses yeah, in the, the UK. You've got the Institute of Directors, which is a slightly more sort of entrepreneurial, medium-sized businesses. Yeah. And then you have groups like the, the Federation of Small Business that worry a lot more about regulation than, for example, the CBI, because CBI-sized companies can afford Absolutely. compliance departments. And you have the BCC who talk for manufacturers and you and you and the EF and you have lots of them but on the whole the CBI definitely speaks for big business they tell you that that's not true and they've got 22,000 members but in reality policy is set by the um, president's committee and that's made up of 13 people and the list is never made public but I'm sure you'd find the names that you would recognize on that committee mm. and that's one of one of the things I think is really interesting is that politicians always talk about small businesses and Ed Conway and I'm sure you'll put it up on Comment Central did a great piece uh, for us on the business pages I will a few now. weeks ago uh, <laughs> about how this obsession with small business, you know, actually is, is rather strange because you can quote all these stats about how many jobs they create, but in reality, lots of those jobs then disappear a few years later and a lot of those small businesses are just one man. But So it is as if politicians are scared of talking about big business and, and big business itself is scared about 
speaking out. And I completely agree. You, we do have to take. You do have to realise where the CBI is coming from, or you know, or where you know the FSB is coming from. But they are the voice, and I do believe they should be heard. And you know, it's not just that they're not being heard. I think they are themselves quite scared of speaking out. Hugo Rifkind, is, mm. is, is Richard right? The Times did an opinion poll at the start of the year when we asked the world to identify the person they most admired anywhere yeah. in the world. It wasn't um, wasn't Barack Obama, it wasn't the Pope, it was Bill Gates. Right. And if you, you look at um, you know Richard Branson is yeah. supposedly admired, is, is Richard being hard on the uh, the business people you, you you for example watch the scottish election quite closely business piled in at the end there did yeah, they have absolutely. an effect well it, it's very hard to know on the one hand they probably did have an effect because people thought if all businesses are coming out on one side of this argument this is this is worrying this is worrying impl- implications for my you know my, my wealth and that of my family and my prospects and etc but simultaneously the the support of business the universal support of business was used as a tactic to beat up the no campaign it was often said this is the party of money this is the party of you know the, mm. the ruling class this is not the party of people and business and people are sort of portrayed in opposition I mean, i think if you know if i think if people if, if people so admire bill gates i mean that's that's not because of the microsoft thing that's because of the malaria thing probably you maybe know maybe a to, combination maybe a, maybe a, maybe a combination so i think people i mean i think biz, uh, big business certainly does a very poor job of explaining why it is of relevance to most people's lives and not just of relevance to itself and I think, and, and I think that the, the damage done to our perception of big business by you know four or five bad tax stories is just enormous, mm-hmm. um, and affects you know companies even that play sort of completely by the book. I'd have thought. And there's evidence that companies like Starbucks have suffered. Yeah, in recent times because Starbucks, uh, Richard, have, Amazon haven't. You know, mm, yeah. and you know that's quite. You know, Starbucks. Is that more because they have the monopoly position. Um, I think one a monopoly too. They they offered a much better service. You could go anywhere to get a, a mm. nice cup of coffee and not the Starbucks coffee is that nice but you couldn't go anywhere to get the sort of delivery service I think people are talk a lot about boycotts and not using but I think in the reality yeah. in those two weeks lead up to Christmas people opt for Amazon because they know chances are it is going to get delivered Laura I think um, I was going to say that the you pointed out to Richard that there's, a, there's differences in big business and there's different kind of types different views and I thought one of the most interesting interventions in the Scotland debate was from John Lewis because that's a quite a sort of you know a cuddly we, we all like John of, Lewis exactly yeah. it's a national brand and when they stepped in I suspect that people listened more other than supermarkets maybe. are available <laughs> I suspect that people listened more to them now I understand that like John Lewis has a very, um, you know, treasured brand, and I'm sure they'd want to be very careful about stepping into something like the debate on immigration. But mm. I was looking up some stats in preparation for this, and I saw that in you know, business, it's more trusted than politicians, government, and um, journalists. So <laughs> perhaps having them, you know, different companies, particularly more respected ones, long-standing British brands standing out on immigration, maybe it would help to kind of swing the debate back a bit. It's doing research for the podcast. I know, how dare I? Shame all of us. Um, Richard, just just final word to, to you. Business might be particularly important in the EU debate, the in-out debate. Of course, lots of businesses, lots of Eurosceptics, remember, were big advocates of the Euro. Yes. Uh, h- h- how much do you think that, as well as the unpopularity of big oil and big banks and tax avoiding, come? How much do you think that sort of not entirely perfect history will potentially add to your what? worry that business authority is undermined? 
if, if, I, if I was running Nigel Farage's campaign, and I'm not, uh, <laughs> then I would be digging out all those quotes from all those car manufacturers and all those people in the city who said this would be, you know, if we don't join the Euro, it'll be a complete disaster. I'm sure a lot of that will be quoted back at the FT and at Honda and at, at lots of other people. Mm. Well, on that note, Richard Fletcher, Hugo Rifkind, Laura Patel, thank you very much. Thank you to Dave McGuire, my producer, for putting this podcast together. And most of all, to you for listening. We will be back next week with a different cast. Thank you. Bye-bye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.